University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. For as far back as I can remember, I have been a movie junkie. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I know, you use movie illustrations every single Sunday. And when I can think back of the earliest movies I saw, it was uh, classic Disney cartoons. Peter Pan, Dumbo, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Sword in the Stone. And if we're honest, these classic movies are downright frightening when you think about it. Just think of the plot line of Dumbo. Clowns kidnapping, and public humiliation. Yep. And we won't even get started with Pinocchio and Pleasure Island, but Disney has always been at the cutting edge of of technology and production. This is the company that produced the very first feature-length animated film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. It was released in 1937, and Snow White became the crowning achievement of Walt Disney and the film industry. What they were able to do with Snow White was to produce a, an animated film that captured audience for more than an hour. And this spurred the company on to continuing to release project after project, film after film, technological advancement after technological advancement. But in the mid-90s, Disney was struggling. In fact, they were having a hard time producing any sort of blockbuster animated film. So they decided to partner with a little-known organization in Emeryville, California. And in 1994, the two companies merged to bring us the story of a little boy named Andy and his toys that come to life. Pixar's Toy Story was a game-changer for Disney. For What they did was they introduced the first time a film that was done with computer graphic imaging. It had never been done before. And as we know, the history of Pixar, hit after hit, movies like Incredible, Finding Nemo, Monsters, Inc., Cars, Up, Toy Story, Coco, and if you haven't seen Coco, bring a box of Kleenexes, you're going to need it the whole time. Now, this animated industry affected the rest of the industry. See, Disney is always at the cutting edge of doing what is next, what is creative. This is a company that when many of us think about it, we think of all these amazing achievements over the last 90 years that all started with a central character of a mouse. Think of all the things that they have achieved. Animatronics at theme park rides, first films to be created in motion control cameras, the first creation of 4D films, high definition of any broadcasting company. The list goes on and on of the ways that Disney is always at the cutting edge. They're always at the creative forefront. This began in 1923. Last year, Disney made $55.1 billion. They had over 150 million people in their theme parks. All this that came from a mouse. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Andy, what have you taken the last three minutes to talk about Disney? It's simple. Great organizations continue to reinvent themselves Great organizations continue to adapt and evolve to do great things. This organizational characteristic should be living within every local church. But for many, it isn't. A few weeks ago, we began a six-week series focused on the peculiarities of UBC to 
think critically, to live creatively, to love continually. This makes us uncommon and distinct. But sometimes churches can be stagnant and stunted and stifled. Sometimes churches lose focus that they are the living, breathing, spirit-filled community of the people of God led to live out this emerging dream of God each day. In the church's history, we look back and we see that the church has constantly adapted, constantly changed, constantly been at the forefront of what God is doing next. This is the purpose of the church. So how do we live creatively as we claim that we are called to be? What does that look like? Can we turn to an example of that? For that, we look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verse 20. And the scripture reads this. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will you say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. When you hear the word kingdom, I wonder what comes to mind. For me, I think of medieval kingdoms. I think of the time of expansion, of war, of feudal systems. I think of knights and shield bearers and spears and swords. I think of kings and queens and courts and castles. When I think of this time, I think of Edinburgh Castle, which is in Edinburgh, Scotland. Some here were able to see that recently in our congregation. I saw this in 2006. Did you know that uh, Harry Potter novelist J.K. Rowling used this as the inspiration uh, behind the creation of Hogwarts? In fact, she paid over $1,000 a night in the remaining months while she was trying to finish up the saga and cap off this Potter storyline. She paid $1,000 a night to stay in a hotel that overlooked the castle. And Edinburgh Castle has been the, the centerpiece of so many things. As far back, as they say, to the second century, the Castle Rock was the, the central piece of this region. If you held the rock, then you held the region. Edinburgh Castle is also supposedly one of the most haunted castles on earth. There are a lot of old knights and clanging swords and kings and queens, maybe horcruxes of Voldemort that are hanging around in there. But when you hear the word kingdom, this is probably what comes to mind. But the phrase, the kingdom of God, we hear often within Scripture. Sometimes we can hear a word that it loses its flavor. Sometimes we hear a word and we don't understand fully what it means. We're not talking about knights and castles, Game of Thrones type things. We're not talking about a king who sits on a throne and manipulates a group of people based on a narcissistic perspective. What are we talking about when we talk about a kingdom, God's kingdom? Well, there have been people who've written 500-page plus dissertations. There are people who've written endless books trying to define what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom is the central theme in the New Testament Gospels. The word kingdom is the word basilea. It appears 120 times in the Gospels alone. Just to give you a little contextual comparison, the two dominant words by used by Jesus' followers today are typically grace and love. Did you know that those two words combined in the Gospels only appear 35 times? 120 times the kingdom of God appears. So what is Jesus talking about? He says things like, the kingdom of God is like a man who had two sons, or the kingdom of God is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and loses one and leaves the ninety-nine to go find the one. The kingdom of God is talked about in parables, giving us a glimpse into the savor, into the feeling of what the kingdom can be. 
He taught us that the kingdom of God was about a new way of life, forgiving those who have wronged you, loving your neighbor as yourself, providing uh, for the physical needs of other people, being the presence of Christ in other people's lives. Jesus showed us the power of the kingdom as he healed the sick, as he cast out demons, as he turned five loaves of bread and two fish to feed thousands of people. And so it's hard to define what the kingdom of God is. And even that phrase, the kingdom of God, in Scripture can confuse us because in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Jesus would use the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Was he talking about heaven? Well, not necessarily. Actually, the term kingdom of heaven was a common term substituted for God's name because God's name, it was believed to be so holy that we wouldn't speak the name of God. So the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, oftentimes is referring to God and Scripture. But Jesus would also use the term kingdom of heaven synonymous with the kingdom of God. So we're taking this a step further. What is Jesus talking about? When the Gospels talk about the kingdom of God, it talks about something that's different, something that's countercultural, something that's not used to the norms of how we see this world. In the Gospels, Jesus has and continues to shift the paradigm of what we know about life. So the kingdom is about making significant changes in people's lives. We see evidence of this by the way that Jesus encountered people. After being in their presence, they were transformed. Whether this changed their way of, uh, by healing them, by uh, teaching them a new way, Jesus transformed lives for the sake of the kingdom of God. And we've caught that their kingdom doesn't have any boundaries. Because we see in the Gospels that the kingdom of God isn't just for the Jews isn't just for the Gentiles, it's for the so-called sinners of Jesus' day. Yet, what is the kingdom of God like? And where is the kingdom? How do we get into the kingdom? Well, looking back at the context of Luke chapter 17, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees asked a legitimate question, when and where is the kingdom of God coming? In fact, this was a very common belief in Jesus' day that the messianic figure, the Messiah, would come in. It would be obvious that this is when the kingdom of God was restored and they were thinking of a Davidic-like figure that would sit on the throne in Jerusalem and restore Israel back to its kingdom status during the time of David. And the reality, the, the Pharisees are asking a legitimate question, but Jesus does something very significant. For the second of many times in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus denounces sign-watching, saying you're not going to be able to see it here and there. In fact, don't even be looking for it in that kind of way. I believe what Jesus is trying to say is that you can't calculate, you can't figure out, you can't control when the kingdom is coming. But Jesus does say something very curious here. He said that the kingdom of God is here. So maybe the question we should be asking about the kingdom is not what or where. What if the question we should be asking is how and when? Jesus deflects the Pharisees' question by simply stating, boys, the kingdom of God is here. Okay, maybe that's my translation of what Jesus actually said. It appears that Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to think less down the road of some future thing that God was doing, but again to think about what is happening here and now. And this has been the age-old debate about the kingdom. For some, we want to argue that the kingdom of God is some future thing when God brings all people unto himself because we want to focus a time on the future. The future becomes our fixation. For many, when you talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about it and fixating on heaven. Oh, sweet Beulah land. 
The point and goal of salvation comes down to heaven for many people. But there's a flaw in that theology. For one, you are making the spearhead of your salvation about some distant and far-off thing that happens when we die. Did Jesus not bring us good news here and now for the sake of the kingdom of God? Is God not interested in bringing us freedom and love here in the present? Are we saying that true freedom will only be felt when we die? You see, this is the simplistic, complex nature of the kingdom of God. It is here and it is yet to come. If we center our lives on heaven alone, life in the age to come, then we are completely neglecting the work of salvation that's done here in the present. As one author put it, To say it again, eternal life is less about a kind of time that starts when we die, and it's more about the quality and vitality of life now in connection to God. Eternal life doesn't start when we die. It starts now. It starts not about when life begins at death. It is about experiencing the kind of life now that can endure and survive even death. You see, I believe that Jesus is trying to make clear to the Pharisees, trying to make clear to us that the kingdom is not some distant thing in the future that we will eventually touch. Jesus says in this text, the kingdom of God is here now. We are told that the happiest place on earth is Disney World. And I'm going to put myself out there and say I couldn't agree more. My parents grew up in Florida, so as a kid um, going to Florida, it was almost an annual event for us to go to Disney World. I have the fondest memories of absolutely being petrified of Pirates of the Caribbean at four years old. I can recall vividly the the nighttime spectacular as floats became uh, this fluorescent glow all around us. And I can close my eyes and remember seeing Indiana Jones' stunt show for the first time and thinking, I can't wait till I'm old enough so I can go out there and do that. When I knew I was going to ask Jennifer to marry me, I set plans in motion to celebrate our dating anniversary at the Magic Kingdom, to which at Cinderella's wishing well, I propped down on one knee and proposed to her there. In March of 2017, my parents took our family to Disney. It brought tears to my eyes to see our little girl see Cinderella's castle for the first time and to meet all the little princesses. Disney is a place that brings people together to forge new memories. It brings laughter and joy and excitement and fulfillment, for it can be said it is the happiest place on earth. But when we think of the kingdom of God, think of the magic kingdom and multiply it times a gazillion. For that is what the kingdom of God is. It's a thing that dwells among us. It's this thing that Jesus spoke about as a mustard seed that can be planted in the ground, this small tiny seed, and blossom into something huge. He says it's like a little bit of yeast mixed into dough that it can expand and expand and expand. This small thing can become great in the kingdom of God. It's a a kingdom of peace and security. It's irrepressible. But there's another translation that Jesus brings here that I want to really focus in. There's another way to read this. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is within you. The Greek word used here is entos, which means within, inside, among, within your soul. 
At other times, Jesus talked about using this term entos. He said to the Pharisees that they're hypocrites for they make sure that the outside of their bowl is clean, but the inside is corrupt and rotten. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is not some external thing seen in signs and end of time watching because the major work of the kingdom of God is inside us, transforming us into the new way of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is within us. It is in our midst. The kingdom of God lives within you. God's kingdom is within you. Stop and pause and consider for that just a second. The kingdom of God is inside you. It dwells within you. The same power that breathed life into existence, the very strength that bore the cross and resurrected Christ from the dead, the courage to break down the religious and social boundaries, that exponential power of love dwells within you. The kingdom of God is in you. What does that look like? As we journey with Jesus, the kingdom of God is at Movement. It's growing each day. As Jesus invites us to journey with him, each day we are transformed into the way of the kingdom of God. As you follow Jesus, daily you are being transformed into the way of God. Your thoughts become God's thoughts. Your words become God's words. Your decisions become God's decisions. The kingdom is forming and moving within you. And when you journey with Jesus, following him in faith, then you start to reflect the kingdom of God. We are being the kingdom of God when we realize that we are beloved children of God. When we recognize that God is more concerned with our well-being than religious rules and regulations that we claim we have to follow. We are being the kingdom of God when we choose to love, to show mercy, to seek justice. We are being the kingdom of God when we choose not to judge and condemn others, but see them through the eyes of God. We are being the kingdom of God when we place ourselves to the side serving other people and putting their needs before our own. We are being the kingdom of God. We're being the kingdom of God when we have compassion to embrace the broken and the weary on the road, even if that compassion is too prideful to realize it. Jesus loved the self-righteous Pharisees just as he loved the prostitutes and the lepers. We are being the kingdom of God when we worry about the least of these, not the greatest of these. We are being the kingdom of God when we embrace the poor, the beaten, the imprisoned, the enslaved, the blind, and the helpless. We are being the kingdom of God. We are being the kingdom of God when we put to death the patterns and practices of this world and to take on the patterns and practices of God. We are being the kingdom of God when we realize and embrace that life is not about building up our little kingdoms. It's about tearing them down so that we can build up the kingdom of God. We are being the kingdom of God when we realize that God doesn't care about our wealth, our success, but how we utilize these things for the sake of the kingdom. We are being the kingdom of God when we realize that our families, our cars, our friendships, our stuff, our job, our very existence is because of God, not because of anything that we have done. We are being the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is within you. It's within me. It's moving and working. It's not some distant, far-off thing that we will realize one day. It is here and it is yet to come. The kingdom of God is inside you. You would have been the laughing stock of the land 
If you had told Macedonians at the beginning of 323 BCE that their great leader would die unexpectedly and the world-shifting development that he made would crumble within a few years. See, after his father, Philip of Macedonia, was unexpectedly assassinated in 336, remember, you've got to kind of count backwards and forwards when you get to the BCE time, Alexander III of Macedonia took the throne, and within 13 years, Alexander had stretched the Macedonian rule from the province of Greece to Egypt to India and everywhere in between. What Alexander had accomplished was done by no one else to this point. Instead of conquering a foe and suppressing their history and their culture, Alexander chose to assimilate the conquered foe into the greater Macedonian Empire, even empowering its leaders within his court. He spread the Greek culture, philosophy, trading practices, and religion to the far reaches of the known world. Alexander is the reason that as we get to the first century, most people spoke one language. Specifically, it was Koine Greek. Rome had Alexander to thank for the very foundation of what would become the greatest empire the world had ever seen. Yet, in 323 BC, at the age of 32, Alexander the Great died. And with that died the dreams of a unified kingdom, learning from each other. Instead of appointing a successor, Alexander's kingdom was divided up among four people who instead of unifying together for the sake of Macedonia, they all were in it for the sake of power and wealth, what they could get for themselves. So in 323, one of the greatest kingdoms began to crumble because it was more about me than it was about Macedonia. What I want us to begin to see is that creativity ignites when we center our lives on the kingdom of God. Creativity ignites when we embrace God's kingdom within and around us. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but the kingdom of God remains forever. This cosmic idea is shrunk down into the personal level in Jesus' words, saying the kingdom of God is within you. Are you living in the way of the kingdom? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness? This cosmic reality of the kingdom of God will continue even if we choose not to be a part of it. But imagine, imagine what it would look like if each of us embraced the kingdom of God in our lives first. It's like Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will take care of itself. Imagine how creativity would flourish if we lived with the kingdom of God within and among us. Think of the possibilities of living creatively for your life, for the University Baptist Church, for this community, and for the world. The church is not a stagnant, stunted, and idle organization. Instead, the church is a living, breathing, spirit-filled community of people led by the emerging vision of God. So take hope that the kingdom is here today and it is to come. May we embrace the power of God at work in our lives and live creatively for the kingdom.